The Old Testament lesson for today is from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. This can be found on page 85 of your Pew Bible. While Moses is meeting with God and receiving the law, Aaron gives in to the people's demands for a golden calf. The Israelites' worship of this familiar idol arouses God's anger. But Moses' prayer prompts him to respond in his mercy. A reading from Exodus chapter 32, beginning with the first verse. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone and my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. 
And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. If you still have your Bible open, I want to look at verse 14, the last verse of our reading today. I want to begin at the end because it's a real word of hope. Here's what it says in verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord relented. The title of today's sermon is God Relents. We are going through this Exodus story during these weeks, and we are watching all the movements of God. And today we are reminded that God relents from the disaster. I've been praying a prayer similar to this. I know about this verse, and over the last couple of months, my prayers often have begun with, Lord, when will you relent from this disaster? I'm talking, of course, about the global pandemic. It's been two full years now. Do you remember when it started? We were told it would be two weeks. Remember that? Oh my goodness, we're going to shut everything down for two weeks? That's going to be so hard. Two weeks to flatten the curve. And here we are. And hasn't it been a bit of a disaster on a number of levels? I'm not just talking about the virus. I'm talking about all of the division, all of the isolation, the depression. It has felt on a number of levels like a disaster. And over the last couple of months, I've just found myself saying, Lord, will you relent from this disaster? As we go through this story in the book of Exodus, we see that God eventually does relent from the disaster of this particular story But in the meantime, as they endure this disaster, there are lessons to be learned. There are lessons to be learned. There's a word in here for us, enduring what we're enduring right now. There's a word for for leadership. There's a word for people. And almost surprisingly here at the end, there's a word for God. There's a reminder for God. We'll get to that. But first, let's look at what the word is for leaders. Uh, Exodus 32, verse 1. Let's find out what, what lesson, what message, what word God has for leaders through a disaster. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Now, I used to read this phrase long ago, and I thought it was a bit silly. We don't know what's become of him. But I I have a little bit more sympathy as I consider this a bit further. Moses had been gone for 40 days. And if somebody disappears into the wilderness up a mountain for 40 days, it's pretty reasonable to think he might be dead. He might be gone. And so the people have a perceived leadership vacuum. For all they know, Moses is gone. Now, we know, and we're going to see in the remaining verses, that Moses is not dead. In fact, he's up the mountain doing a very important work with God. God's sovereign plan is still unfolding just as God designed it. But according to the people down below, the leader's gone. God is silent. God is absent in their experience. There's a leadership vacuum. They don't know what's become of Moses. So what do they do? They surround themselves around Aaron, Moses' brother someone who is present, someone who they can see. 
and they go to him to describe to him what they want, what they think they really need in this situation where God is clearly absent. So what request do they bring to him? Verse two, so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. There seems to be a, a missing detail here that Aaron already knew what they wanted. They go to Aaron in this perceived leadership vacuum, and Aaron knows just what to do. He says, okay, bring me all your gold. Take it off your ears of your whole family and bring it to me. Verse 3, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Aaron seems to know exactly what they wanted. They wanted a golden calf. God seems silent, God seems absent, and so the people say, we better take matters into our own hands. We better craft something with our hands and place it before us. Why a golden calf? It seems a bit weird to us. I bet if we had a perceived leadership vacuum in this room, you guys wouldn't demand of me that we make a golden calf. So why did they insist on that? The Israelites had probably seen some of their neighbors have golden calves, maybe even the Egyptians worshipped golden calves. A calf is a, is a cow or a bull, and it would be a symbol of fertility, productivity, and strength. Fertility, productivity, and strength. And the people say, we need one of those. We need a symbol of fertility and productivity. All the things we lack, all the things that God is obviously not supplying for us right now, we better supply it ourselves. And so Aaron makes this golden calf. Now, why exactly did Aaron do this for them? Well, they were demanding it. And Aaron made a classic leadership mistake. He gave people exactly what they wanted. He was a man pleaser, according to the biblical description. You want this? I'll give it to you. And so he does. He doesn't please God's commands. God had already given the command, do not create for yourself a graven image and bow down to it. So he's not pleasing God in this moment. He's pleasing man. He's giving his people exactly what they asked for. What do they do with it? We're halfway through verse 4. A graving tool to make a golden calf. Now watch. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Wait, what? Aaron creates this golden calf. He gives the people exactly what they want. The calf is there before them. And the people say, this is our God. This golden calf is actually what delivered us. Now, Aaron doesn't say that. Isn't that interesting? Aaron just simply is a people pleaser. He gives the people exactly what they want. They take it and run with it. And I have a feeling Aaron is scrambling at this moment. Aaron does not know what to do because look what happens next. When Aaron saw this, verse 5, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The capital L-O-R-D there is the name Yahweh. I think Aaron is scrambling. He is a people pleaser. He gave the people exactly what they wanted. And they take it and they all of a sudden are completely abandoning the God they're supposed to be following. So he says, um, tomorrow we're going to worship Yahweh. And he puts this altar right in front of it. When we seek to please man, it can get us into all kinds of trouble. Now I have to say, 
I understand where Aaron was coming from. I myself can tend to be a people pleaser. You know, I'm the youngest of four kids. Maybe that's where it came from. I grew up in a household where I realized, you know, if somebody asked me to do something and I do it, everyone's a little bit happier in in the house. There's a little bit more peace. Yeah, I'll I'll just do what anybody asks me to. I'm nice. And I'm a bit of a people pleaser. And it can get me into trouble sometimes, especially as a pastor. Because when I have some people in the congregation saying, Pastor, we want this. And I'll say, okay, I'll give it to them. And another group of people say, we want the opposite. And now I'm in conflict because I want to please them too. When we're people pleasers, it can get us into trouble. It gets Aaron into severe trouble in this situation. The apostle Paul ran into a similar circumstance. In Galatians 1 verse 10, he puts it in very clear terms. Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul says this. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is in a situation where it's a very black and white situation. It's very binary. I'm either going to make these people happy, I'm going to please man, or I'm going to please God, his commands, his ways. Sometimes it's that black and white for leaders. There's a warning in here for leaders. Now, maybe you're thinking, I'm not a leader. I don't lead anything. I don't lead any institutions. I'm just a stay-at-home parent. Well, you get it too. Stay-at-home parent. You're le- Think about toddlers. Those of you who are stay-at-home parents, you can be a man pleaser. You can be a toddler pleaser. Or you can do what you know is right in the household from the commands of God. When you put it in those terms, it gets pretty clear, doesn't it? Some people, I've noticed, are toddler pleasers. And it leads to disaster. So the word in here for leaders is please God. Even when it comes at the expense, even when it costs the likes, so to speak, of man. Be motivated by pleasing God. Get him to like your page, not man. So what's the word for those of us who are the people in the situation? Maybe you're not thinking that you're leading much, you're just a person in the group. What's the word for us? The word for leaders is please God, not man. What's the word for for all of us? Verse 7, we pick up the story. The scene shifts here in the narrative. That's like the camera goes from down below to up the mountain where Moses is still alive, dialoguing with God, and God's going to have a word about the people down below. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've corrupted themselves. You see in this perceived leadership vacuum when the people have forgotten God, they assume that he's absent or silent. Well, they've run the car into the ditch again. This is what happens when we are left to our own devices. We corrupt ourselves. We have to be honest about that. If left to our own devices, when not following the laws of God like we looked at last week, we corrupt ourselves. Verse 8, God continues. They've turned aside. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. God gave a command to go a certain way to follow his commands, and they've turned aside. Remember that as we continue in this story. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God is just simply relaying the facts on the ground to Moses at this point of what disaster has taken place down below. 
Verse 9, God continues, The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, there's a vivid illustration from God. Oh, I know about these people. They're stiff-necked. Now, to the original readers of this text, they would have immediately known this reference. It was an agricultural culture, and so people used oxen and donkeys. I have this picture of a donkey that I found online. Patrick, you can put that up there. It wasn't hard to find online a picture of a donkey being stubborn. You see what's happening here? This woman clearly is trying to get this donkey towards that trailer. And what does the donkey do with that you know, bit of leading? The donkey says, well, then I want to go the other way. You can see it pulling. It's stiff-necked. It's pulling the other way from where the woman is trying to lead it to go. When God looks down at us, when he thinks of when he's kicking back thinking about us, he says, oh yeah, they're like that. Doesn't that make you feel all warm and fuzzy when God thinks of you? He thinks of a stubborn donkey. These people are stiff-necked. They've turned away from the way I've commanded them. Notice how he said that? They've turned away from the way I've commanded This is a pretty vivid illustration of that. God leads us in a certain direction, and there's something about us that says, well, because you're leading me in that direction, I want to go the other way. Isn't this true of human nature? Beginning with Adam and Eve, God said, you have one rule. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. And suddenly the fruit from that tree got a lot more interesting. It's in our literature. Romeo and Juliet, these two teenagers, you're a Montague, you're a Capulet. It's forbidden love. Suddenly they got a lot more interesting to each other. You tell me I can't love him? He looks so handsome now. We do what we're commanded not to do. There's something in us. When you're walking along a sidewalk and there's a sign in the grass that says, do not walk on the grass. Am I alone in thinking, what if I want to walk on the grass? What is that? That's sinful nature. We are stiff-necked people. Our entire country was founded on the idea that we will not be told what to do by a king. We want to go our own way. One of the basic foundational things that sin does to us is it wants us to have the illusion of being in control. We don't want to surrender our will to the will of someone else. Even when it's God, even when it's our creator, we say, you tell me what to do, I want to do this other thing. We are a stiff-necked people. We're like donkeys. This sermon gets a little happier by the end. I know it's a little hard right now. I was thinking even beyond the illustration of the donkey, even beyond the illustration of, of the animal, I was thinking in my own life, in very practical terms, how might I have a stiff neck towards God? And I was thinking about even my own posture of prayer. You know, when I pray, I, I, I bow my neck, my literal neck. I bow it, and I say, Lord, may your will be done. Not my will, but yours. Will you command me? Will you take control of my life? I literally bow my neck. And that's the invitation in prayer. The invitation is to surrender control, to not be stiff-necked and proud and say, I'll go my own way, thank you very much. But to literally bow our necks, to bend our necks, to surrender to the will of God. Now, it's a little bit sobering to consider 
the consequences if we don't, if we remain a stiff-necked people. The Bible's quite clear what the consequences are, what we deserve if we remain stiff-necked, if we remain like that donkey on that image, always wanting to go our own way, always rejecting and rebelling from the commands of God. It tells us the same story throughout Scripture, and it tells us again right here in verse 10, where God continues considering these stiff-necked people. Look what God says we deserve if we remain that way. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. God says what I ought to do is unleash my wrath and start over with a new people who will surrender their wills to mine. That's what God ought to do. It's a sobering idea. But the Bible is clear. When we are rebellious against our creator, what we deserve actually is the wrath of God. And that hard thing to consider gets resolved by by the word. We've had a word for leaders. We've had a word for people. The word for people is basically surrender. Don't be stiff-necked. But there's a word for God in here. There's a word that Moses brings to God after God has declared what we deserve, which is his wrath. We start hearing about it beginning in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them on the mountains? to consume them from the face of the earth, turn. Turn from. This is pretty audacious when you think about it, isn't it? All the people we've turned our own way with our stiff necks, and Moses says, Lord, will you turn? Will you turn away from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people? Remember. This is the word for God. We have such a relational, such a gracious God that we can actually speak a word to him as Moses does here. God, I know that we are stiff-necked, that we deserve your wrath, but will you, oh God, remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that you promised to make a great nation out of all of us, that you would redeem us, that you would continue using stiff-necked people like us. Remember, God, your graciousness, your loving kindness, your faithfulness. God, remember who you are. This is a very hopeful word for us because when I look out at the landscape of our world today and when I look even at my own self, I have to agree with God's assessment. We're a stiff-necked people. I'm a stiff-necked person. I have a hard time submitting and surrendering to anything, let alone the will of God. And God looks at us and he remembers. This intercession Moses brings to him to remember, God does that. God remembers his graciousness, his faithfulness. And I want to share something with you. If you haven't ever heard what happened on the cross, I want to describe it in perhaps a a fresh way for us this morning. God looks at all the stiff-necked people, and God in his grace remembers his faithfulness. And Jesus on the cross surrendered. He was not stiff-necked, as it were. Look what it says in John 19, verse 30. This is Jesus upon the cross. Then when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. 
And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, the king of kings, the one that everyone ought to bow down to, the one that everyone ought to surrender their wills to, because he is the king of all creation. And in our rebelliousness, we turn away, we're stiff-necked. Jesus says, I'll do for you what you seem incapable of doing on your own. And Jesus bowed his head. At the moment he was receiving the wrath of the Father that we deserve. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He surrendered. He said, not my will, but yours. Look at the grace of God. Though we don't deserve it, he's done for us what we seem incapable of doing for ourselves. How might we respond to such good news? How might we respond to such grace? I think of that hymn, I Surrender All. I surrender all, all to thee, my gracious Savior, I surrender all as a grateful response for his act of surrender. We can loosen our necks. We can surrender our control. We can submit our lives to the one who's graciously done that for us first. And we can then truly worship him. Not a created thing that we've made with our own hands that we declare as our savior, but we can worship him, the one true God. Come back next week. Because next week is a lot more positive, I promise. Next week, the people actually get it right. They're going to contribute their gold and their silver once again, but this time with true hearts of worship. They're going to bring their offerings to construct the tabernacle, and they're going to be motivated by faith, not fear, as they were in this story. So come back next week to see how we might respond to the graciousness of God in his finished work on the cross and bring our hearts of true worship and live lives of surrender to our one true king. Amen.